necessary. Well, most people in here probably wouldn't know the name Jimmy Graham. And if you do, you are probably a football fan, and you know him as one of the best tight ends playing in the NFL today. Most people, if they know anything about Jimmy Graham, would probably only see uh, a very athletic, very big man who plays tight end, did play for the Saints, now plays for the Seahawks, and who just last year signed a contract for $40 million over four years. He's at the top of his game. He's in his 20s, and he's obviously making quite a bit of money. Very, very successful, successful guy. The type of guy that most people would want to know. But that hasn't always been the case for Jimmy. When he grew up, Jimmy never knew his biological father. Um, When he was 11 years old, he got in the car one day with his mom and fell asleep in the car. And when he woke up, at the end of his car ride, his mother was dropping him off at a home for social services because she she didn't want him anymore. She was signing him away. She didn't want to take care of him. And he called his mom while he was there, and and she would hang up the phone on him. She didn't want anything to do with him. He was an 11-year-old kid. Nine months later, she took him back, and she was uh, married to a new guy, his stepfather. And when he went back into the home, his stepfather would beat Jimmy and obviously didn't like him. And Jimmy was afraid that his mom was going to put him back into uh, a social services home again. And at this point in his life, obviously a young kid, this, this guy is nobody to most people. Most people wouldn't think anything about meeting this kid or think any potential for this kid at all. Well, at this point, he began attending, uh, I believe it was a midweek prayer service at a local church, and he did it basically because he wanted a free meal, which they offered, and he didn't have many friends, and he, he was trying to make some friends. Well, one night at this prayer service, he shared a prayer request with the group there that he was worried that his mom was going to take him back to this uh, social services group home and and drop him off again and not want anything to do with him. Well, at this point, there was a woman, he's about 14 at this time, and there was a woman who was 25 named Becky Vinson, a single mom, had a daughter of her own, and she took notice of him, and obviously her heart was breaking as she's listening to this prayer request that he's, he's giving. And it turns out that she adopted Jimmy and gave him a stable home life. They didn't have a lot of money, but she loved him, cared for him, sent him to high school, consistently helped him to to work hard, challenged him to get good grades, and he did. And he also started to grow and started to play basketball. And he wound up being 6'6", big, big kid, and he got a scholarship to play basketball at the University of Miami. He played basketball there for four years, and then when he was done with that, he tried football out. Wouldn't you love to have that much talent, play college basketball, and, oh, I think I'm going to try football out now. Tried football out, was drafted by the New Orleans Saints, and is one of the most successful football players playing in the entire NFL today. What's well, a great story. Uh, and there's, there's so many lessons that we can learn from a story like that, and you can find more details about Jimmy's life online and read more about him. But I think it's fascinating to consider the absolute reversal of fortune that happened in the life of this, of this guy, Jimmy Graham. 
if you or I would have met him when he was 13 or 14, I mean, we, we wouldn't have wanted anything to do with him for the most part. We wouldn't have thought much of him. We just would have seen a kid who had a tragic life, whose parents didn't want him, who was being adopted. I mean, we just wouldn't think much of this kid at all. But if we met him today, most of us in here would probably want his autograph <laughs> and would, would just want to know this guy and just talk to this guy. What a fascinating career. What a successful guy. How did you do it? We would, we'd be interested in him. What an amazing reversal of fortune happened in the life of Jimmy Graham. And I don't know about you, but I love stories like that. I, I heard this story on the radio uh, a couple days ago and went and looked it up and just fascinated by what happened to the, in the life of this guy, Jimmy. And in many ways, this is a classic underdog story, right? I mean, the guy who has nothing ends up with, you know, almost everything this life can offer, successful in so many ways. I mean, it's a rags-to-riches story, and we love, love these sort of stories where nobody becomes somebody in a dramatic way. Well, I think you would know that your Bible is filled with stories like this. Stories of people who are obscure, people who are weak, people who are persecuted, and whose fortune changes in a dramatic, dramatic way. And today we're going to enjoy one of those stories from the book of 1 Samuel. So I want you to open your Bibles up to 1 Samuel chapter 1. And what I'd like to do today is I'd like to show you this story from 1 Samuel 1. Most of you probably know the story of Hannah and Samuel is is what we're going to look at from 1 Samuel 1. I want to show you this story, but I also want you to understand that the same theme that we're going to see here, this theme flows throughout the pages of Scripture like a mighty river. And almost any page that you open up, you can see this theme being worked out in God's providence throughout your Bibles. And you can see it worked out as God saves the weak, the humble, and the obscure, and the persecuted by his power and for his glory. And that's what you see in 1 Samuel 1 and really what you see throughout Scripture. So open up there if you're not there yet. Let's talk about where we're at in Israel's history. Okay? Now you may not know this. But at the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, when you open up and start reading here, as you think about where you are in the biblical timeline, you're actually reading right in the middle of the book of Judges. This takes place during the middle of the time period of the book of Judges. In fact, you may not know this, but Samson and Samuel were actually contemporaries. They lived at the same time. Much of their lives overlapped. They were almost born at the same time, and uh, Samson passed away quite a bit before Samuel, but their lives overlap in many ways. Um, They grew up in a similar time period, and you know the end of Samson's life, where he pulls the temple of Dagon down, and all the Philistine lords are killed? Well, there's good reason to think that that event is what led to Samuel freeing Israel from the Philistines, in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And so, you know, it's really, I think, interesting to study Scripture and start to understand how some of these these lives fit together and how the the storyline and the chronology works there. But since this book takes place during the time period of the Judges, 
if there's anything that you know and remember about the book of Judges and that time period, it should be that Israel was in absolute moral chaos at that time. I mean, you can remember the last phrase in the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That was what was going on in the nation of Israel at this time. The people are without a strong leader at all. There's nobody leading well. And it's in that context that you open up to the book of 1 Samuel and you encounter a very unlikely individual here in the first verse. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeraham, Jeraham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, an Ephrathite. So you start reading about this guy, you read about his background, you're not reading about a judge who's going to save the land like Samson or Gideon. You're reading about this guy, Elkanah, who was an Ephrathite. Who was this guy? What was special about him? Well, as you start to study all these names that are difficult to pronounce here in verse 1, you start, and all these places that are listed here, you start to realize, we don't know who this guy was. We don't even know where some of these places were. This guy was a, an absolute nobody. There's nothing significant at all about this guy. There's no reason for us to have this guy brought to our attention here. His family's not significant. His hometown is not important This is just another average guy in Israel who happens to be living during the time of the judges when there was no king in Israel. And as you begin to read about this man, you read through chapter 1 and chapter 2, you might be wondering why why start this book of Samuel out with a focus on this guy? Why is the attention given to this guy here? And as we study all the way through to chapter 2 and verse 10, what I want you to understand here this morning is that Elkanah and Hannah and the events that happened to them with the birth of Samuel, these are like, these are like a, a miniature version of what happens and what God's going to do with the nation of Israel. Okay, So this is like a tiny microcosm, a tiny story that's happening here, and it's reflecting something much bigger that's going to happen, and much bigger in the way that God works with the nation of Israel. Think of it like this, okay? I don't know how many of you like jazz, all right? Maybe some of you are offended that I even say that. <laughs> I don't know how many of you like jazz, but um, I, I was at, a, at school this past January, and one of the guys that I go to school with, he's a pastor, but he's also a jazz musician, and and he explained to me a little bit how jazz works, and I thought it was fascinating. Um, jazz, and I, I didn't understand this at all, but when, when you listen to a, like a quartet play jazz, they'll start out with a melody line, and it's very, very strong, and that's played at the beginning of the song. And then they'll take that melody line, and they'll kind of they'll work it through the rest of the song. And each member of the quartet will take that melody line, and they'll be creative with it, and they'll play off of that melody line, But everything ties back to that melody line that's given at the beginning of the song. And everything resembles that melody line that's given uh, at the beginning of the song. Well, think of these first couple of chapters of Samuel as the melody line for the entire book of 1 and 2 Samuel. This sets the theme. 
This tells you what's going to happen. This tells you how God is going to work throughout the entire book of first, the books of First and Second Samuel. And the author is going to play different variations on this theme that we're going to explain in just a minute. But this is how God's going to work through this book. And I think this is how God works in delivering his people throughout the entirety of Scripture. Okay? So, here's what you're going to read. We're going to put a, a, a summary statement up on the screen here. This is what you're going to read throughout the books of Samuel. This is what we're going to study today. And this is, I think, the way that God works in bringing salvation to his people throughout Scripture. All right? Here's what it says. God exalts the weak, obscure, and persecuted to deliver his people for his purposes and glory. That's, you keep that melody line in your head here. Remember that as we study through these passages today, because that's the center. That's what we're going to talk about today, all right? Let's see how we get there as we study through this, all right? We've seen this, this guy here, okay, now a very average guy from a very, a very nondescript hometown here. Let's read a little bit more about his family situation in verse 2. Right? He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, as you read this, you need to understand that he didn't just have two wives for no reason at all. Um, he had two wives for a specific reason, and this was a, a custom that happened fairly frequently during this day. The language here says that Hannah was his first wife. She, he married her first, and then he married Penina. And the reason that that's significant is because he married Hannah, and she was unable to have children. And it was so important in this time to have children and to pass on your family name that he had to take a second wife, who was probably younger, in order to pass on the family name here. And this was not uncommon for people to do this during this time in the nation of Israel. So don't think of this as a, a deviant thing that he did here. This was a pretty common cultural practice. In fact, you can see in verse 3 that not only was this not uh, deviant in many ways for this time period, but Elkanah was actually a pretty devout guy, a pretty godly guy, despite, despite having two wives here. Look what it says in verse 3. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Now, the tabernacle was in a city called Shiloh at this point, and that becomes important later in the book of Samuel because eventually the tabernacle and the temple end up at Jerusalem, and that transition is fascinating in the book of Samuel. But right now, it's at a city called Shiloh. And in verse 3, you get this introduction to the leadership in Israel. Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Now, as you get later into the book, in, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, you understand why there's a leadership vacuum in Israel at this time. These guys are not good guys. They're not godly leaders. And you'll read about that later on. But we'll even see hints of some of that later in chapter 1 here this morning. But verses 1 through 3 kind of give us the setting here. They tell us about Elkanah. They tell us about his family situation. And now verses 4 through 19 give us the main part of the story that we're going to study together this morning. Look at verses 4 and 5. 
So generally every year he goes down to worship at, at Shiloh. Verses 4 and 5 introduce us to a specific year when he did this. All right, verse 4. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. Verse 5. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Now you can see from his actions that he loves Hannah and he's devoted to her despite the fact that she was barren and that she couldn't have any children. Now, it's interesting to stop for a second and to think about Hannah's barrenness. And we need to do that if we're to understand what's really going on in this story and the larger connection that this story has to the history of Israel and to God's purposes. All right? There's a passage that I want to put up on the screen here and read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. Okay, Listen to this promise that God makes to the nation of Israel as they're ready to go into the promised land. All right, And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. And listen to this. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. That's an amazing promise that God makes to the nation of Israel there. This promises that if the people were faithful in the land, then God would make them fruitful, they would multiply, they would fill the land, they would fill the earth, and that none of their women would be barren. Now this promise goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. What does God tell Adam and Eve that they're supposed to do? They're supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with image bearers of God. And Israel had that same commission when they entered into the promised land to, be, to multiply, to fill the earth, to spread image bearers who love God out over the entire earth. This was part of the task that the nation of Israel was given to. But because of the curse of sin, because of Adam and Eve's failure, now, bearing children, even getting pregnant, was difficult because of sinfulness. In fact, barrenness, when you read about barrenness in Scripture, barrenness is actually a threat to God's redemptive purposes that he promises in Genesis 3. Remember what he tells Adam and Eve? It's through your seed, through the seed of the woman, that a deliverer is going to come. And when you read about barrenness in Scripture, it's a threat to the fulfillment of that promise. So this is much bigger here than just Hannah not being able to have a child. Here we find a woman who's living in a time of national disobedience and she's experiencing the impact of the curse of sin. Now, it's not specific sin necessarily from Hannah. We don't read about anything from her life. We actually read quite the opposite. But because of the time she's living in, because of the disobedience of the nation, because of the curse of sin, she's experiencing barrenness because the people have disobeyed. 
And it's like her story is a miniature version of what's happening to Israel. She's experiencing barrenness just like the nation of Israel is going to experience barrenness if they continue to be unfaithful to God and to His purposes and His promises. But here's what's interesting. Think back over your Bible, over what you've read up until this point in the book of 1 Samuel, and think about when you read about women who are barren. You read about Sarah, you read about Rebecca, you read about Rachel. Each time that we read about a woman's barrenness in Scripture, something miraculous and something amazing happens. So as you read this here, as you start out this book of Samuel, you, your expectation level should be sky high for God to break in and for God to do something amazing in delivering His people. Because we have a barren woman here. And that's been His pattern in Scripture. Now, the situation is difficult for Hannah because she's barren, but that's not the only problem that she has here. Not only is she barren, but she's, she's persecuted, she's humiliated, and she's mocked. Now, we've all experienced a little bit of mockery from time to time. People picking on us, a little bit of gentle, uh, you know, gentle making fun of. Uh, just this past week, uh, someone let us borrow a video game system, and my son, who's five years old, has discovered that he is very, very good at playing sports games on the video game system, and he lets us know about it. He is quite the able trash talker. I don't know where he got it from. I assume it's Bethany, not me. Um, but he is quite good, and he is not shy about letting us know his superiority. Well, that's not the type of gentle ribbing that's going on here in this circumstance. Look at verses 6 and 7. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. The other woman, married to Elkanah, is probably younger, obviously is able to have children, and she takes the opportunity to mock Hannah. In fact, what she probably was doing is she was probably saying, Hannah has been sinful. This is a result of God's judgment on her, and that's why she can't have children. That's most likely what she was doing here. And this was a consistent pattern. Year after year, Hannah would experience this from this rival woman here. It's bad enough to want to have children and to not be able to, but to be mocked by this other woman, unbearable. For Hannah to have this. In verse 8, you can see that Elkanah is, is devoted to her still, despite her barrenness. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And, and what he's probably saying there at the end is, is not some, some... Sometimes he gets mocked for saying this. And I think what he's saying is, am I not more devoted to you than ten sons? I'm given to you, Hannah. I love you. I care for you. So, one year, verse 9, while they're in Shiloh, and after they've celebrated, and after they've sacrificed, Hannah can't take it anymore, and she gets up, and she goes to the tabernacle to pray. Now, I think it's awesome here that Hannah clearly knows that the Lord is sovereign over her circumstances. She 
understands that God has, has made her barren, but she doesn't let that turn to fatalism. She doesn't say, whatever will be, will be, and there's nothing I can do about it. Instead, she goes to the Lord and seeks His face and prays to Him. And knowing that the Lord is in complete sovereign control, that drives her to prayer. Look at verses 9-11. through 11. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Now, the language in verse 11, I want you to see here. She says, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant. That's the same language that God used of Israel in Exodus when they were in slavery here. Hannah knew her Bible. She knew the books of Moses. And she knew the way God had delivered the people from slavery there. She knew about how God worked. And so she picks up that same language here and prays to God. And what she's doing is she's remembering the past faithfulness of God and she's praying in light of that past faithfulness and expecting that God may do the same thing for her. I'm almost sure there's a lesson for our prayer lives in there somewhere. But I'll let you try to to think that through and process that through. So she goes and she prays here. She prays based on the character of God. And while she's praying, Eli the priest is sitting in the doorway. And you can see in verses 12 through 14 that he notices what's going on here. Verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Now, I told you we'd see a hint at the wickedness of Eli. If he can't tell the difference between a woman praying and a drunk woman, then I think he's probably not the leader that Israel needs. And the fact that he thought there might be a drunk woman here in front of the tabernacle kind of lets you know that the situation in Israel is not all that good right now. This seems to be something he expected to happen there. So... Hannah tells him exactly what's going on here. Look at verse 15. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Eli responds, verse 17. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then look what happens here. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. She responds with faith, with trust in the Lord, and God grants her request. Look at verse 19. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. And look what it says. And the Lord remembered her. When it says that the Lord remembered her, you can remember back in in verse 11, 
she prayed that the Lord would remember her. And verse 19 is the answer to that request. The Lord did remember her, just like He remembered Israel in Egypt. Just like He remembered Noah in the ark. And when God remembers His people, when He remembers someone, it's not just recalling you know, their, their life to His mind. It means that God acts on behalf of His people. He act on, acted on behalf of Noah and brought him safely to dry land. He acted on behalf of the nation of Israel and brought them out of Egypt. And here He acts on behalf of Hannah and all Israel, we'll see in a few minutes. And verse 20 happens. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I've asked for him from the Lord. Now Samuel's name means name of God or offspring of God. Obviously, Samuel was Elkanah's son. As it says in verse 19. But Hannah named him this because she knew that she had been barren. And that God, by His grace, had given Samuel to her. And you can see that she responds to that gift of grace by keeping the vow that she'd made. Look at verse 21. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Now look how Elkanah responds in verse 23. And I want to point out a couple things about this verse to you. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. And then look at this phrase here, he says. Only may the Lord establish his word. Now at the beginning of this verse, he tells Hannah, You keep your vow. Do what you need to do, but keep your vow to the Lord. But in the middle here, he says, only may the Lord establish his word. Well, is Elkanah thinking of a specific word from God to Hannah? We haven't, we haven't read anything. We haven't heard anything. So what is he talking about here? What is he speaking of? I think here that Elkanah is thinking about God's bigger promises to the nation of Israel. I think what he's saying is he fully expects God to keep the promises that he's made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the nation of Israel as a whole. I think when we read this here, this takes us back to the whole history of what God has been doing in the nation and the expectation of a deliverer to come. And I think that Elkanah and Hannah had this experience of Hannah being barren for all these years and she prays to the Lord and there's miraculous birth of this baby here that she's vowed to the Lord and I think they're going, something's going on here. This, this is like Sarah. This is like Rebecca. This is like Rachel. God is breaking in here and God is doing something. And so I think Elkanah says this here because he knows God's faithful to his promises And he's hoping, even though it's a time of national disobedience, he's hoping that God is going to bring his people, bring his people back and deliver his people from their sinfulness. Now, look at the end of the story, verses 23 to 28. The rest of verse 23. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine. 
quite a large offering. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull. They brought the child to Eli, and she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I've lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord there. What a great story. I mean, Hannah prays, she receives a son, she gives him back to the Lord. What an amazing story here. And a lot of times when we read this story, I think we stop there and we start to think, okay, how can we apply this to our own lives? What do we do with this story here? How do we work this out this week for us? And a lot of times when we read this, we think that this is a story about how we should pray. This is a story about, wow, Hannah prayed in such faith and she vowed a vow to the Lord and, and I should pray with faith. And that's true. But is this a story about praying and getting what you ask for? Is this a story that if you vow something to the Lord and you, you, you give it back to the Lord, that he's going to give you what you ask for? Are we to learn that God's going to grant us what we want when we do things like Hannah did them here? Is that, is that what's going on here? We have to be careful not to view this story as only an example for us to follow regarding prayer and regarding faith. Because I think this story is so much more than that. If our application here is be more like Hannah, then I think we've missed what God is doing in the first couple of chapters of Samuel. This story is not primarily about Hannah. It's not about Okana. It's not about Samuel. I think this story is about something much bigger than any of those people and their prayer lives and the faith that they have because that's how Hannah understands what has happened to her. And how do we know that? How do we know how Hannah understands what has happened to her? Chapter 2. Verses 1 through 10. I'm going to put a quote on the, screen, on the screen here. Theologian Peter Lightheart says this about this story. Clearly, Hannah understood the birth of Samuel as something more than her personal vindication and blessing. It's not just about praying for a baby and getting a baby. That's not what this is about. She knew that when the Lord started opening barren wombs, he was beginning to act for his people. This story is about God and his love and concern for his people. And this story is about the way in which God brings salvation to his people through obscure, weak, and needy means. That's what this is about. And that's what Hannah focuses on in this prayer in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. You have to read this prayer with the story in chapter 1 or you'll miss the point. It's the necessary conclusion. In this prayer of praise, Hannah's vision goes far beyond her personal circumstances. That's not primarily what she prays about. By the end of this prayer, Hannah is making, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and his inspiration, she is making prophecies regarding the entire world and God's deliverance of his people in the entire world. She's talking about huge scriptural themes and she's making them explicit so that we can follow them as we watch God work 
and God deliver his people, even in the book of first in the books of first and second Samuel. Look at verse one of chapter two. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Now, a couple things to notice about verse 1 here, okay? First of all, this is really strong language, okay? Um, if you look at, at the first little phrase, couple phrases there, my heart exalts in the Lord. Okay, she's happy. We understand that. She's had a baby. She was barren. I mean, she's exulting. That's true. But look what the second phrase my horn is exalted in the Lord. When she, some of your Bibles may say strength. Horn is a better translation because it's a, it's a metaphor talking about an animal who, is, who has just had victory over his enemy and he's lifting his horn on high because he's triumphed over his enemy. That's what Hannah is saying here in this verse. The idea is that the animal uses the horn as a weapon to defeat its enemy and to secure shelter and food and all of that. She also says here, it says, my mouth derides my enemies. What's actually going on there is she's basically talking about an animal standing over its enemy with its mouth open, ready to consume the enemy that it's just defeated. Pretty, pretty dramatic, pretty strong language there that she's talking about. I mean, this seems a bit overstated to talk about her rival, Penina, here and what's going on. Well, notice the second thing about this, this, this first verse here and, and really this whole song. If you were to go back, and we don't have time to do it this morning, but if you were to go back and look at Exodus chapter 15, you would see very similar language to what Hannah says here. Does anybody know what Exodus 15 is? Exodus 15 is a song that Moses sings about, it's right after the Red Sea experience. Now the Red Sea experience was one of the most decisive moments of salvation in the entire Bible, in the entire Old Testament. In fact, the Red Sea experience becomes this paradigm of salvation that people throughout the Old Testament pick up and they talk about. When God's going to save his people, he's going to do it like he did back here. That's why Israel did the Passover every year, to remember God's redemption. Well, Hannah is referring back to that moment in time and picking up that language here. And I think she does that because she's saying, this is something that's much bigger than just me having a baby. This is part of God delivering his people just like he did in Exodus chapter 15. She sees God's salvation as moving forward through the events that have happened to her. And she sees God's salvation moving forward, remember our theme, as God exalts the humble, the persecuted, and the obscure, and he uses them to defeat his enemies, to deliver his people for his own power and glory. Look at verses 3 through 8. And you can see our theme very clearly in these verses. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. These are the verses where Hannah describes, remember that reversal of fortune? Putting up one, putting down another for his own purposes and glory. God puts down the proud here. He weighs their actions and puts them down. 
Look at verse 4. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. It's It's a reversal there. It's exactly the opposite of what you would expect to happen. Verse 5, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. Reversal of fortunes. The rest of verse 5, close to home for Hannah, the barren has borne seven. seven the number seven is, is the idea of perfection and fullness. She has all the children she needs. And she actually ended up having six children total. You can read later on. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. She's wasted away. She can't have more. Verse 6, the ultimate expression of raising up and putting down. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Verse 7, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. Verse 8, he raises, can you see the theme that Hannah's developing here? She knows how God works. This is what God does. Verse 8, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Why can God do all of this? For the pillar of the earth, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them he has set the world. This is right thinking. This is a biblical worldview. This is how God works to deliver his people. And Hannah doesn't know the details, but now in verses 9 and 10, she starts to think much bigger picture. And she has expectations beyond just her life. And she has expectations to what God is going to do in the future. Verse 9, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. This deliverance is not going to happen. This deliverance from wickedness is not going to happen through man's abilities. How is it going to happen? Verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. And then here's the key part. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. So it's talking about God's worldwide dominion. Hannah has this expectation of God's glory going worldwide, of God judging the ends of the earth, of God's people fulfilling the task that they were given, of reaching to the ends of the earth, spreading image bearers all over creation. How's that going to happen? Look at the rest of it. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. She expects this to happen through a coming king. Well, at this time, there's no king in Israel. There's nobody sitting on the throne at this time. This is a future expectation. Hannah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, expected that there would come a king who would crush Israel's enemies, who would make everything right, and who would lead the people to obedience and to faith. Ultimately, she hoped that this king would spread the good rule of Yahweh across the world. Now, if you read on in the book of Samuel, you encounter a really good king, David. But but David doesn't do this. This is not... David doesn't have worldwide dominion. He doesn't fulfill this expectation from Hannah that's given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Many years later, 
another woman with no children, would be visited by the Lord and told that she would miraculously give birth to a very important child. And look what she was told about that child on the screen. Luke chapter 1, verses 30 to 33. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And you know how Mary responded to that announcement? Turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 1. You have to see this. I'm sure you've read the Magnificat before. In Luke chapter 1. But now that you've read Hannah's prayer and you've seen Hannah's expectation, I want you to keep that and the theme of God exalting the humble and the obscure. I want you to keep all of that in your mind. In fact, if you wanted to hold your finger in 1 Samuel and compare, listen to the language that Mary uses here and see how similar this is to what Hannah prayed. Verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies or exalts the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled, are you seeing the comparisons? Listen to this. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary knows that the expectation that Hannah had, the expectation that the entire books of First and Second Samuel set for this king to come from humble estate, to come in obscurity, and to deliver and to rescue God's people, Mary knows that this is going to happen through God's work in her life. Hannah's expectations were met by the birth of the king of David to this humble girl, in this stable. That's how God works. That's the pattern that He uses. And you can see it throughout Scripture. Now, real quickly here. You might be thinking, that's great. I see Hannah, Mary said a lot of the same things. I see that theme. That's really neat. But what impact is that going to have on my life this week? Let me give you three application points and we'll finish up here, okay? First of all, What should you do in response? Extol the weakness. Extol the weakness. What do I mean by that? This is the way God works throughout Scripture. When you think back in Samuel, David and Goliath, probably the greatest example in that book. Lifting the weak, the humble, the obscure, the persecuted, bringing them to strength. This is how God works. Look for this theme throughout your Bible this week. 
God turns our worldly expectations upside down as he exalts the humble and obscure and uses them for his glory and brings salvation to his people. He sends his son to be born as a man in humility to humble parents and ultimately to die on the cross for lowly sinners. That's how God works. That's who he is. And he ought to be worshipped for that. It's an amazing thing. That's his rescue plan. Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And he ought to be extolled and worshipped and honored because of the weakness that he took on. He was brought low so that we could be exalted and reign with him. He suffered the ultimate reversal of fortune so that you and I could experience the ultimate reversal of fortune. Spend your week meditating on that and think through the God who reverses our fortunes through reversing His Son's fortunes. Secondly, expect weakness. Listen, if God works this way, if this is who He is, if he works by reversing fortunes, by using the weak, by using the obscure, by using the humble, then we can expect that he's going to continue to work that way through his people. This is who he is and this is how he works. This means that God is going to use difficulty. He's going to use obscurity. He's going to use weakness in our lives to bring the gospel to the nations to glorify himself, and to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ. One author said this, God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. You see that with Hannah. You see that with Mary. So that means we ought to expect weakness in our own lives. We ought to expect that. We can all stop trying to hide and think that we're, we're, we're good, we're perfect, we've got this together. We are weak. We are messed up. We have anxiety. We have fear. We have worry. We have grumpiness. We have health problems. We have sickness. We have family struggles. There are people without jobs, without money, without a wonderful past, and without much hope for the future. But those are the people who God typically uses for His glory. We can expect weakness. And then lastly, because we expect weakness, we can embrace weakness. And when we embrace weakness, we can embrace the strength of the Savior in that weakness. God used a barren woman to produce a king maker. God used a virgin to have the Son of God come to earth. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Recently, I read an article about a pastor who's been struggling with anxiety, depression, in a huge way. And 
It was encouraging, very encouraging article, and I thought it would be an appropriate way to end this morning in light of this application. Let me read this, some of it to you. Anxiety and depression have been God's way of reminding me that I don't have to be awesome. He has not called me to be awesome or impressive or celebrity pastor or anything of the sort. He has first and foremost called me to be loved and to be receptive to that love. He's called me to remember that because of Jesus, I already have a name. I will be remembered even after I'm long gone because he is my God and I am his person. He's my father and I am his son. Kierkegaard said that the thorn in his foot enabled him to spring higher than anyone with sound feet. The Apostle Paul said something very similar about the thorn in his flesh. The thorn kept him from becoming cocky. It kept him humble. It kept him fit for God and fit for the people whom God had called him to love and serve. There is glory in weakness. There is a power that is made perfect in that place. Though I would not wish anxiety or depression on anyone, I am strangely thankful for the unique way that this affliction has led me time and again back into the arrest of God. And then he ends with this. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. So let's finish this morning by bowing our heads before our sovereign king and begging him to help us see our weakness and feel our need of him. Let's pray. Father, we are weak. Help us to acknowledge that. Help us to see that, Lord. It should be so obvious to us. We're messed up. We're sinful. We get anxious. We get worried. We struggle. We have difficulty in relationships. We sin. We have weak bodies, weak minds, weak spirits, Lord. We are weak people. We're obscure, Lord. Most of us, people won't know our names even just a few years after we pass away. Many are persecuted, Lord. We suffer. But that's exactly where you want us. That's exactly where you can use us, Lord. That's exactly how you bring salvation to your people. That's how you continue to sanctify your people to make us more like Jesus Christ. So I pray for each one in here, Lord. I pray that we would expect weakness. And then I pray that we would embrace the weakness so that we can receive the strength that comes from Christ. Because he delights to use people who are weak and barren and broken. And he delights to use them for his glory, Lord. We're so thankful that you deliver those of us who are foolish and weak and unwise in the eyes of the world. And you deliver us and you give us the wisdom of God, the wisdom of Christ through your word. We thank you for that, Father. We love you. Thank you for our time together this morning. In Christ's name we pray.